You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us on what is a fine Monday morning in my world. Not sure what day it is where you are. Short intro, because I want to get right to the teaching this morning. We started part one of our series on 1 John yesterday. Loving this series, loving this book. So going to dive right into it. Also want to point out, if you are joining us online at times, or you're just kind of part of the extended bridge community, we're going to have uh, what I'm calling a digital foyer. Just kind of a, a time to hang out online on Thursday. So if you would like to join us for that, you can go to thebridgekc.church, find the Zoom link there Thursday evening. We're just going to hang out, meet one another, uh, pray for anybody that needs it, and uh, get acquainted a little bit in a way that is hard to do during these COVID days. Stay with us for part one of 1 John. If you have your Bible, take it out. If you have a pen or a pencil, um, write down stuff today. Because not so much that I think you're going to go home and study this, but the act of writing something out that you've already thought, it just sticks in your head a little bit more. I don't Throw it away when you're done. I don't care. But the idea of writing down the notes helps considerably. And open your Bible to 1 John. Uh, we're going to stay in 1 John chapter 1. We'll be bouncing around a little bit, but you stay in 1 John and you'll, we'll always come back and find you. Okay, how's that? Uh, welcome to week one of A Study in Opposites, a five-week series on 1 John. I posted that online, and within about five minutes, somebody replied, yeah, this is six or seven weeks easy, because uh, my series never seem to last as long as I think they are. They always go longer. This one is going to be five weeks, and I'll explain why. We'll, we'll stick to five weeks, I promise. First of all, what's the deal with 1 John? Who's the book for, and why are we studying it? Something happened this week that took me back like 40 years to when I was learning to drive. Okay, grew up in North Dakota, so you get a driver's license at 14, and you've already been driving for two years. I literally had kids in my high school that drove themselves to driver's ed. True story. And uh, so I saw somebody post something online this week that made me laugh. It was a perfectly white square, just a white, white square. And the caption was, welcome to North Dakota, where we play a game called, Am I Still on the Road? If you've never driven in North Dakota, there, <laughs> Michelle's laughing, you, you understand, you've been there. There are times you play this game, am I still on the road? Because the road's white, the ditches are white, the fields are white, it's cloudy, so the sky's kind of white. You can't, you can't tell where the lines are on the road, you can't tell where the edges of the road are, you can't even navigate by the horizon, and you're like, am I still? Oh, no, I'm not. No, now, now I'm on the road. Whether we are in a ship looking at the North Star, or we're in an airplane looking at a compass heading, or we're in North Dakota trying to find the horizon, this is true. We navigate our way through life by absolutes. We navigate our way through life by absolutes, by looking for things that can differentiate between this and that. This is the road, that's not the road, this is right, that's wrong, and that's how we navigate. But we live in a generation of people who don't know which way to turn because generations prior to us have decided that absolutes didn't matter. We wonder why a younger generation can't find their way in life when the older generation spent a lot of time taking down all the road signs. And we wonder why they can't navigate. Here's a part of the problem that people have with right and wrong. Not everybody agrees what's right and what's wrong. 
Right? Some of you are going, wrong. No, I mean, not everybody agrees on what is right is wrong. We're pretty consistent on what is wrong when it's being done to us. All right? We're all pretty good on that. But with regard to other people, or rather regard the things that we're doing, we're not always that sure on what's right or wrong. And understanding that people do disagree on what is right or wrong at times, we're faced with the task of figuring out what's right or wrong, or determining our morality, our gauge of what should be done, what shouldn't be done. In the early 1900s, saw the rise of something called moral relativism, in which morals seemed to be relative to the situation that people lived in. It was a way of telling people, well, I know you totally disagree on a very simple thing, but maybe in your way, you're both right. Judges 21 describes a time like that in history, and it describes it this way, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that sounds like anarchy to us, but it's where we live, hence the rise of moral relativism. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, no absolute right, no absolute wrong, no contrasts, only a spectrum of behavior, and we wonder why people don't know if they're still on the road, because we have erased the edges. Moral relativism, relativism is the absence of absolutes. It says what is moral or what is right is determined by the context of a situation. In a morally relative world, there is no God that speaks through scripture, there is no Holy Spirit that speaks to us, and it says, there is only what I feel, and if I feel like I'm a good person, I'll be fine, and of course I think I'm a good person, so I must be fine, and it must be what I'm doing is right. And we live in this age with very little distinction between right and wrong, between this and that. And we wonder why people are crashing all over the place. They're saying, I had no idea I was off the path. I never saw the edge of the road. The book of 1 John is not a book that will support moral relativism very well. It's actually the opposite. It draws distinctions between things, between this and that. You study 1 John as a whole, you see that he draws these distinctions and it actually helps us navigate life. It actually helps us find our way to what is true between right and wrong. We can see the horizon when we study 1 John. We actually can find the road. 1 John, properly understood, will help you navigate areas of life that you could not navigate if you did not understand what right and wrong was. So before we get into the text, four things that you need to know about 1 John. Okay, those of you that are scribbling down, you could head this four things you need to know about 1 John. I'm just trying to help you here. Some of you, it's been a while since you've taken notes, so going back to the beginning. Four things you need to know about 1 John. Can I just draw attention to uh, Brian, who not only delivered my table and my tablet, but my coffee this morning. I'm tempted, I'm tempted to just keep adding things to see what, like a little croissant, um, just a little something over here, I don't know. A lamp, you know, more props every time. Four, four things you need to know about 1 John. First of all, it is Yohanin. Everybody say Yohanin. Yohanin. I don't know why I did that. I hate it when pastors do that. Yohanin. People online are like, I'm not saying Yohanin. But you'll remember it. It is the scholar's way of saying it was written by John. Yes, John the Beloved, John the Evangelist, John the Revelator. That's the same John who wrote this book. Books like Romans or Corinthians were written by Paul. Those are called Pauline epistles or Pauline letters. But Yohanine, this is written by John. Say, why do we have to put it that way? Because we're going to talk about some of the other writings of John. We're going to look at 1 John in the light of the Gospel of John and, and other areas because he uses some of the same things. 
uses some of the same writing styles. So you need to know it's Yahonin. It is also last. It's the last, one of the last books written in the Bible. You're like, if it was last, why is it not at the end? Because when they canonized scripture and they put it in order, it made sense to put the book of Revelation near the end. However, the book of Revelation was written before this. He was exiled on Patmos, got off Patmos, didn't die there, went somewhere else, died somewhere else, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John near the end of his life. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were probably the final books that were written of the New Testament. Now, this is the interesting thing to keep in mind. They were written by John post-writing Revelation, okay? He's already, he has had the encounter, he's had all this, saw the door, come up here. All of that has happened to him when he writes 1 John. Say, so what's the difference? He is looking at eternity with a sobriety that he may have never had in his life. Like, he is looking, he is writing with, he's seen the end. And so his distinctions between right and wrong are very, he's like, I didn't realize how important this was. I had this encounter on the island of Patmos. So now he's writing to people in 1 John, and he is sober as a judge. It's Yohanin, it is last. You need to know it is circular, okay? It's circular. Paul, who wrote, to, wrote the Pauline books that make up the bulk of the New Testament, was educated he was trained he writes like a lawyer he builds a case one two three four book of romans it's like a it's like a legal case you can't find any way around it he was highly educated john was a fisherman and he writes like a fisherman just kind of talks about stuff for a while not formally educated, followed Jesus around from the time he was 15, had a pretty good internship, but he never really ha has been super educated, so his writing style is different, and he takes an idea, and he talks about it for a while, kind of like your grandpa did, and then he goes on to another thing, and he might go back to that thing, and then he goes, and you find that these, there are themes in the book of 1 John that he keeps going back to as kind of a circle. That's why we're not teaching it verse by verse. If you teach it verse by verse, you feel like, I think I just said this, because you just said that, Okay? So it's Yohanin, it is last, it is circular. Finally, it stands alone. How can it stand alone? There's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You know, surely that is the Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Like, surely those three go together. They really don't. 1 John stands alone. It is a general epistle written to everyone. 2 John is written to an individual person. 3 John is written to an individual specific person. And if you want to get really technical, 2 John is written to a woman, and 3 John is written to a man talking about some of the same things, and he talks about them differently. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep into this, but John, who saw many things right and many things wrong, probably did not see gender on a spectrum either. And when you see how he speaks in 2 and 3 John, you go, no, he, men and women are different. And that's not to say that there's not something in one book for the other gender, but it's just how he approaches thought. And I'm just gonna, not going to dive into that immediately. I'll just kind of open that can of worms and set it over here. But I'll get back to it eventually. But he sees in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is to everybody. 2nd John, I mean, they're, they're to everybody. But in his writing style, it's a letter to a specific individual. So knowing it's those four things... Let's look what it says about contrasts or opposites. At least five times in the book of 1 John, he draws really strong distinctions between things. He says, there is this and there is that. Don't mix those up. 
He does not see things on a continuum. He sees them as contrasts. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in coming weeks examining those opposites that he talks about and talking about the danger of blurring those two things. But before we dive into that, just an introduction that John writes to anybody who will read it. Okay, the very first opening verses of John 1. This is his introduction. Okay, John 1, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. John comes straight out of the gate clarifying who he is speaking about there and he's talking about Jesus and he is saying he was both God and man. Now when you read this, it sounds like a little bit of a flowery description. But actually this was a surgical verbal strike against one of the errors that John saw popping up on the horizon. And interestingly, if you look on the timeline of history, John is preempting an argument that was only beginning to get traction, but would stand uh, uh, to get more publicity and more widespread thought in the next two centuries. What is the heresy that he's contracting there by arguing that God was both God and man? Something called Gnosticism. Okay? You're going to learn a word, and you're going to learn what it means here. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that developed late in the first century, about the time he's writing this, but it began to grow considerably in the second and third, and it's interesting that John writes about it so early. He saw it coming. The church needs to be on the forefront of ideas, not on the backside of ideas. And John is on the forefront of this idea. He sees Gnosticism rising, and he goes, oh, i got to stand against it. It is rooted in the idea of knowledge or superior understanding of all things being the way to know Jesus. Gnostics put faith in the minds of men and women. They felt that through knowledge, God was ultimately revealed. Now, I love apologetics. I love intellectuals, and, and I don't think there's anything unintellectual about the Bible. God is not a lightweight when it comes to mental discussions, but he is a person, he is not a set of facts, and you can know all the facts and still miss him. He is revealed to us at a spirit level that outweighs how he's revealed to our mind. Have you ever known something about God, but then in prayer or in worship suddenly, oh, it's real. It's because he's brought it to your, your heart, not your mind. I love the study, love the intellectualism, love all of that. But when it runs rampant, you become a Gnostic. And when you are a Gnostic, you have to do these mental gymnastics to explain who Jesus was. The Gnostics ran into trouble because their intellect tripped them up on this idea of Jesus being both fully God and fully man. John beat one drum his entire life. The idea that Jesus was really God and he was really man. Even when he wrote the Gospels, while the other disciples are writing, you know, they're writing about the story of the nativity, John just skips all that. He goes to John 1.1 in his Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Fourteen verses later, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John constantly hammers home this idea. No, no, guys, he was fully God. And he was fully man. The Gnostics go, how did that work? He goes, I don't know. I just know it was true. 
You can get hung up on what you don't know and how do you figure it out. He goes, if you try and figure this out, it'll drive you crazy. But you know what? It's true. Have you ever jumped to a conclusion that you were unable to get out of your head because of the situation, even though you knew it was kind of a crazy conclusion? The Gnostics did this. The Gnostics came up with all kinds of mental gymnastics to explain Jesus come from the Father, but suddenly now was, was a man, but he did miracles. The, sometimes your initial reaction leads you to actually crazier assumptions than studying something would. Now, Caleb told me I haven't told this story. So if I have told this story, it's all on Caleb, okay? But I, I, I felt like I've told it. He might have dozed off when I told it the first time. I don't know, maybe y'all did. Uh, this summer, it's warm out. It's like 80 degrees at night, and uh, one of my dogs has to go out, and I wake up in the middle of the night, take the dog out. And uh, I take the dog out, and I'm standing out in the front yard as the dog does things dogs do out in the yard at night. And we're about 150 yards away from this fountain in the front of our subdivision. You know, the, you, you get the idea. And as I'm standing there waiting for the dog, I see something coming down the street. And at first, I think it's a coyote. We live out in the boonies, so this could be a coyote. I think it's a coyote coming. It's moving kind of across, back and forth, kind of like it's casing me, you know, across the street, and it's coming closer and closer. But it's too smooth for a coyote. It's got no, it's got no bounce. It's just like it's... It's like it's floating, and it's coming faster and faster, and it's gray, and it's about the size of a coyote. And, and as it gets closer and closer to me, it comes faster and faster. And I'm like, what is this thing? I'm thinking, you know, do I grab the dog and run? Do I leave the dog and run? You know, how much do I love the dog? And suddenly it comes super fast, and right as it gets to the edge of my yard, it goes straight up. And before I can, like, formulate a theory, here comes another one. And I'm like, you know, what do I do now? And, it's, and I, the first thing I thought is, is this a demon? Like, that's the first thing I think of. Is this a demon? And then it dawns on me, no, some neighbor kid has dumped a box of Tide into the fountain. It's foam. It's literal foam that's coming up and it's just like coming down. Like, like, but no, I think, is it a demon? Sometimes... In trying to like figure stuff out, you, you latch on to kind of a crazy answer. And the Gnostics did this. The Gnostics looked at Jesus and they tried to figure him out. So these are the understandings that the Gnostics had. Maybe God was divine, but Jesus was just a man. Or they said, maybe he was a ghost. Maybe he was an apparition. Maybe somebody dumped, you know, tide in the fountain. I don't know. Well, whatever he was, maybe he, he couldn't possibly have been both. Because of the difficulty to understand how Jesus was both God and man, the Gnostics drew this strong distinction between our spirit and our flesh. And they said, your spirit is completely disconnected from your flesh. Your flesh is completely disconnected from your spirit. And you can live that way. Now, that idea is still around. People are eager to bifurcate their spirit from their flesh because it allows them to do things in the flesh and think it doesn't affect their spirit. saw somebody the other day had a t-shirt. If you have this t-shirt, I don't want to know. Okay, you might have it, but I don't want to know. This t-shirt that said, uh, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little bit. We all laughed. But don't do that. Okay, you can't draw this distinction between your physical body, your behavior, and what God is doing in your heart. You're saying, does a Christian never ever say a bad word? I said, no, I'm sure it happens. Don't brag about it. 
Okay, that's, there is no bifurcation between your physical life and this, your spirit life. People say, well, you know, I love Jesus, but what I do with my body is no big deal. No, it's not. It's not your body anymore. You gave that to the Lord. You belong to Jesus, and he wants it all. Our physical body and our spirit are more intertwined than, when we, ima- than we imagine. That's when Jesus is admonishing them to pray. He tells them, oh, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. If it didn't matter, he wouldn't have brought it up. He goes, I need your spirit, and I need your flesh engaged here. And so the Gnostics would drive this hard and fast line between their spirit and their flesh, and, and they just got completely off base. That's what happens when you disconnect the idea of Jesus being both God and man. You don't have to be able to explain that, but you can't deny it. When you deny it, you get off. Hebrews 13.9 says, you'd be led away by diverse and strange teachings. John, in his opening salvo of 1 John 1, makes it clear, Jesus was there in the beginning in the sense of Genesis, from the very beginning, he was there, meaning he existed before anything else existed, and then we saw him with our own eyes and we laid hands on him. Now, there, is, there was coming a time when there would be believers on the earth that would not have had that privilege, okay? Who would not have been able to have laid hands on him. John's saying, I was there. I, I held on to him. I hugged him. I felt him. I smelt him. He was there. That was important to many of them. That's why Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, have at it. Thomas is like, I can't believe unless I touch you. Jesus says, no, have at it, Thomas, see. In John 20, 28 and 29, Thomas touches him and says, oh, you are my Lord. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus was saying there is coming a generation of people who will not physically see me, won't physically touch me, and they will believe and there's a special blessing for them. We are among those people. He was speaking of people like us. And our faith in Jesus is in the same Jesus that John and Thomas saw. It is not the Jesus of the Gnostics. It's the real one who was all God and all man. 1 John again, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He continues this introduction. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy might be made complete. He said, I am writing to you as somebody has put my hands on Jesus, and you can know Him. And even people who won't get a chance to lay their hands on Him physically can fully know Him. John was always walking that balance of talking about the majesty of Jesus and the reality of Jesus. And if you don't know both aspects, you are getting less than He died for. The Gnostics were so proud of themselves for finding loopholes for behavior by dividing Jesus up into spirit and flesh and then dividing themselves up the same way. And John says, oh, no, no, no. He is all in all. And your encounter with him is the same way. He has a work for your spirit and your body, and you can know him. So with that kind of certainty, John starts talking about opposites and contrasts. And the opposite of John chapter 1 is this, light and dark. Look at verses 5 through 10. We're going to read all these together. In fact, let's, uh, just so we can kind of feel this in our spirit, okay? Read this with me. We'll have it up on the screen. John 1, 5 to 10. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I want to back up just a second to chapter to, to verse 7, which really is the linchpin here. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. Jesus so clearly here through John lays out the difference between light and darkness. Light and darkness have an interesting relationship. Because we're using the phrase opposites, but technically they're not opposites because opposites tend to counteract one another. I am, uh, I, I am the proud father of three seventh grade girls. Seventh grade girls in seventh grade math, which means lots of negatives and positives. Numerically and socially and just in a lot of ways. There's a lot of negatives and positives to seventh grade math. But we're trying to explain how a negative two and a positive two is that a four something? No, it's a nothing. Okay, it's like they're, it's like they're opposites and they come to, to nothing. In that sense, light and dark are not opposites. Because they don't come to nothing when you put them together. One of them wins every time and it's not darkness. Why does John use the imagery of light? He has always been drawn. He's been writing about light for decades. If you go back to his Gospels, John 1, 5, he said, The light shined in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it, or has not overcome it. No matter the intensity of the darkness that you find yourself in, light extinguishes it. In fact, the more intense and the more dark it is, the smaller amount of light that it takes to make itself known. And to people living in a dark world, full of confusion, full of betrayal, full of sin, John says, God is light and there is no darkness in him. Sometimes I hear people talking about just how dark the world is. As if they're afraid it's going to completely overpower them. Oh, pastor, have you heard? They describe the latest terrible thing that has happened. I can't tell if they're in fear of it or fascinated by it, but it's, oh, there's so much darkness in the world. I think it's important to know what is happening in the world, but it's even more important to know where the light is and to walk in it. Because we walk headlong into a lot of trouble. You don't understand this as a child. You don't understand this maybe as a 15-year-old. If you're lucky, you get it at 20. Some of us didn't learn it until we were 40. Many of our difficulties we walked into. How did I find myself in this room? I walked in here. Like I literally, the steps that I took led me to where I am. Not always, there are circumstances that happen that are out of your control, but a lot of the things you walked into are darkness that you walked into because you didn't walk into the light. John eleven ten. again, back in his Gospels, he's writing about light. He says, if anybody walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
doesn't have to be that way. A man or a woman does not have to stumble and bust their knee on the things in the dark like some non-stop afternoon talk show. <laughs> you go get new tires on your car. I don't know why. Every tire store has the same crazy talk shows playing in the waiting room, you know? And it's, it's the people in the craziest situations. You're like, you caused that. He says, your life does not have to end up on the Montel Williams show. Okay, you, you, that is not your destiny. You can walk in the light and avoid a lot of those pitfalls. And John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, two things happen. Two things happen. One, we have fellowship with one another. The level of relational potential is never higher than it is among people who share a relationship with Jesus. It's as close as it gets. Christian community, when we do the work of building it, I, I beat this drum, you don't find community, you build it, okay? If you're lonely, call somebody. You build community. But Christian community, when we build it, walking in the light puts us in agreement with people that we may have nothing else in common with, except that we know Jesus and we're going the same place. And in that, there is a familiarity and a stirring and a connection that we never find any other way. We suddenly become like Nacho talking to Ignacio. I like those same things every day, you know? It's like we're so excited about, because something resonates with our heart with the other person because of our spiritual background. Walk in the light and fellowship develops. The second thing that happens when we walk in the light is the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Like, wait a minute, I thought I was saved and I thought that's why I'm walking in the light. Yeah, but you cuss a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, you, there are issues that we wrestle with, okay? And he says there is a sanctifying work as we intentionally walk in the light, examine the scripture, say, what does it say about my life? Talk to the Holy Spirit. Lord, what do you say about my life? And adjust your life to those things. And you begin to walk in a way that is different. And he begins to sanctify you. Now, people panic when they read this because they go, oh, does John conflict with Paul? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and that's not from yourself, it is the gift of God. No, we believe that you are saved through grace. You don't earn it. However, having been saved, to continue to walk in the darkness stirs up things and gives the enemy access into your life that can be avoided if you walk in the light. Some of you are thinking, well, I need all the help I can get here because I'm stumbling. I, I, I don't sense the fellowship. I'm stumbling. I need help. And I don't even know if I'm getting any better. You ever look at yourself and go, I'm not getting better? It's how we walk in the light. It's, it's simpler. It's actually simpler than you're going to wish. Uh, you're going to wish it had 19 steps and involved algebra. Because then you can go, nobody can do this. But it's actually not that hard. We walk in the light a couple of ways. We dive deep into the scriptures. Your spiritual walk will never outpace your appetite or attention to the Bible. It just won't. It just won't. Getting to know the scripture is the primary method in which we begin to know what it means to walk in the light. God, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you saying? Well, what are you reading? I haven't read anything. Well, he wrote a lot down. Like, there's a Bible. And he says in Psalm 119, 105, 
that his word is a light onto our path, onto our feet. It's a light onto our path. It has never been easy in all of history to be a, even a, a moderate student of the word. Never. Think about this. People who know our faith and supported our faith down through the centuries had to exchange scraps of paper with little bits of scripture written on and memorize them and then trade them with the friends of the woods in the dark. We have more biblical uh, material available on the phone in your pocket than was in a library 20 years ago. And so to say, I don't know how, I can't get into the word. It's never been easier, okay? Find a reading plan and do it. Oh, Randy, which is the best one? It's the one you'll do. Really, it, the one you will do is the best one for you. I've done them all. I've been through the Bible in a year, through the Bible in 90 days. I've been on, I, just the one that gets your face in the Word is the best one for you. Find it and get to know the Bible. And ask the Lord, what, how do I walk in the light of what you... Some of the light that He is giving you is literally... Okay, in light of that, then how do I act? I remember about, about a year ago, I was reading a passage about uh, reconciliation. And the Lord stirred with me someone who I, I needed to reach out. And I, I had, so to walk in the light, I had to pick up the phone and go. That's what it means to walk in the light. Get to know the word and let it meld and massage your heart and then walk in what you've learned. Second thing you do is you invite the light inside you. You read the Bible and then you pray what you read and you offer him access. You say, okay, Lord, in, in light of what you've shown me now, what do I do with this? Here's the crazy thing. He'll tell you. He'll actually tell you. You will be shocked at the things that will come to your mind when you say, how do I implement this, Lord? He'll speak to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Christ Jesus. He said, I want to shine a light in your heart more than you could possibly imagine. And when I do, you'll be amazed what will scamper in there. Like, you ever, you ever go into a, like a garage or something, turn the lights on, and it's like, you see critters running everywhere? He's like, let's flip the light on, okay? Let's shine a light into your heart. Take note of what scatters. Walking in the light is a lifelong endeavor. I don't care if you're sitting here and you're 19 and you're going, yeah, I probably should do this. If you're 99, you never graduate from this. Things done over the passage of time always take dedication. That's why I appreciate anniversaries in a way that I don't appreciate birthdays. You, you get a birthday just for showing up, right? Like, if you do nothing, you, huh, you got a birthday. But anniversaries, you fight for those things. Like every day, you, you work on those things. Anything worth having takes fighting over time. Nobody gets to an old age and is surprised at their walk with God. No, they've been fighting for that their whole life. John tells us, light is light, dark is darkness, the two don't mix, light always wins. It's as simple as this. Why is he even addressing it? Never underestimate people's ability to confuse things when the simple truth makes them uncomfortable. Like, when the, when the truth is simple, never underestimate people's ability to make it more confusing. When pastors do Q&As, the questions are almost always phrased in light of things like, is it a sin to da 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 
And the people go on then to describe what the Bible clearly describes as a sin, but it's not clear to them. Sometimes that's out of ignorance of Scripture. You can't blame people for that, but a lot of times it's a well-informed person looking for a loophole. Is it really, you know, is it really a sin? Forty years ago, there was a general sense of what righteousness meant, even if people didn't live by it. Now the debate is not what is righteous. The debate now is if righteousness even exists. And it does. And the light of righteousness shines on the dark of the unrighteous, and it exposes everything. So if light and darkness are so different, and light seems to win every time, why does it seem like people are constantly looking for gray areas to live in? I learned long ago that clarity is offensive to people. Like, if you're sure about something, the people who aren't sure about it do not like that. Even if you don't care if they're wrong. It, it just is. They would rather hide in the gray, one foot in the world, one foot in the light, hoping nobody notices. But the contrast of light and darkness is so convoluted in the gray areas by these two lies that we tell ourselves when we try and stay in that gray area. The two lies in the gray area are this. One, we claim to have fellowship and we don't. He writes there in 1 John, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We have an ability to lie to ourselves and believe it. And one of the ways we do this is we tune the voice of the Holy Spirit out so that we can talk smack and nobody calls us on it. If the only interaction you have with the Holy Spirit was at the time when you got saved, when he convicted you of your sin, and then you have checked out of encountering him, no wonder you're finding yourself in the gray areas and running off the road. To interact with the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment -moment basis is how we walk in the light. It's how we work. It's how we rest. It's how we spend our money. It's how we spend our time. If you are making major financial decisions without engaging with the Holy Spirit, you're off in the gray area. You're probably going to hit the wall. If you are making major life choices without asking the Holy Spirit, you're probably going to hit the wall. You're not navigating according to how He wants us to navigate in the light. Now, that doesn't mean that you get up in the morning and you open your closet and say, Lord, which shoes? You know, I mean, you, you live an element of, of autonomy in certain areas, but you can't just get saved and then never hear the voice of God and not wander off somewhere. You've got to cultivate a walk with Him. That regular check-in of saying, okay, Holy Spirit, how do you feel about this? Lord, I'm struggling today. Holy Spirit, how do you feel about this? Making a big decision. Holy Spirit, I'm thinking about changing jobs. Holy Spirit, he will speak to you. You say, will I get an audible voice? Probably not. You might. I don't know. But he will speak. You'll find a peace on the inside that comes and a confidence that comes with walking in the light on a day-to-day -day basis. That regular check-in with the Holy Spirit, that's what it means to walk in the light. You realize there's light and darkness and you want to stay away from the edges, not as close as you can get to the edge. To get as close as you can to the edge and try and stay in, but maybe do that, that is lying to yourself. 
and not living in the truth. Here's the other lie that we tell ourselves. We claim to have no sin when we do. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 Verse 8, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, he's not writing to the unsaved here, okay? He's not writing to the, uh, the renegade masses and the reprobates. He's actually writing to people in the church. The unbelievers don't really think much about sin. Your neighbor who is running around on their spouse, and is, you think they're thinking about sin, they're not really thinking about sin, okay? He's actually speaking to believers. He's writing to those of faith. And he's saying, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. For those under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and having no fellowship with darkness, there is still some aspects of our behavior that brushes up against what's right and wrong and sometimes we choose wrong. And the Bible admits that it's complicated. Some of you are going, does that mean that I could like walk out of here and... and do a little sin and not, suddenly I'm not saved. No, no, no. It's actually a little complicated. This is the way the Bible describes it. 1 John 5, 17, he says, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. It's like there are things that we do as believers that displease the Lord that don't cost you your salvation, but yet they displease the Lord. And he said, if you say those things are not in you, you're lying to yourself. They're in you. And the best thing you can do is walk in the light and ask him to remove those on a daily basis. There are sins within the life of a believer that are at odd with the hearts of the Father that, according to Scripture, don't seem to be fatal, but they're undesirable to the Lord. And to deny that you wrestle with those things is to live in a fabricated world. Be honest. By claiming we have no sin, we actually worsen our reality by engaging with that sin and silencing the voice of the Holy Spirit and suddenly getting pulled off and completely off the path. Now, okay, Randy, what's the answer? Like, what do we do with this now that I know that I've got to examine? Randy, you act like I should ask the Holy Spirit what he thinks every day. You should. That's called walking in the light. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. In other words, you just don't keep doing these things that you're doing. And then in verse nine, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This walking in the light is a day-by-day -day discipline. It's not that he has us hanging by a thread over a flame. He's wanting to lead us, though, and that path that he wants us to lead us on has edges. He says, walk in the light so you stay within my confines and that you will actually get where you're supposed to go and you don't find yourself into the darkness stumbling through life. I want to ask Matthew if he'd come. We're going to close up with just a word of worship, but I, let me encourage you to make this discipline of inviting the Holy Spirit into your life in a way that he speaks to you so that you walk in the light. Light and darkness are different things. You don't have to meld those two for you. It doesn't work. It's displeasing to the Lord, and you find yourself off in a way that you never thought. Stand with me if you would. Father, we ask...
if your Holy Spirit would come and rest in this place. Lord, that by your sweet presence, you would reveal things to us. That we would know you and your spirit in conviction of wrong in our hearts. We would make the adjustment that we would walk in light. And we ask, Lord, that fellowship would spring forth. Even as we talk this week about gathering online, Father, our hearts are for community. We pray that that would be built in light of who you are for us, God. Let's just take a few minutes and worship the Lord.